0: You're listening to BLF Podcasts.
1: The Society for Culture and Environment extends a warm welcome. Today's session is titled The Climate Crisis from the Bhopal Literature and Art Festival, January 2020. We have with us Ms. Mridula Ramesh, author of critically acclaimed The Climate Solution India's climate change crisis and what we can do about it. She is the founder of the Sundaram Climate Institute, which focuses on waste and water solutions and education. She will be in conversation with Mr. Deepak Tiwari, a journalist and an author. He was Vice-Chancellor of Mahanlal Chaturvedi, National University of Journalism, Bhopal. And Mr. Mahesh Rangarajan, a researcher, author and historian with a special interest in environmental history. He is a professor of environmental studies and history at Ashoka University.
2: So first of all, welcome to Rupal, welcome to Madhya Pradesh, the land of tigers, the land of Bharat the land of so many diversities. When we were with Chhattisgarh earlier, before 2000, it really used to be a huge, huge state. Still, we are huge, and uh, the book uh, of yours on climate solution. um, When I was told that uh, I have to be in discussion with you, so I read it and I realized that every person who wants to understand this issue of climate, not those who read a lot, not those who are privy to. reading uh, english language and uh, having good publications but ordinary people they should definitely read this book because you have explained this climate crisis in a very simple simple uh, language you have suggested uh, the problem and then the solution uh, as well but still i feel that uh, we try to answer, uh, answer many questions, but some questions they are missing. Maybe uh, in your second book, uh, you said, which you are writing on water, we'll be getting uh, those answers. So my first question is uh, basically me being a journalist. And uh, so we have this, uh, you know, the very first question is why this book?
3: Thank you, I think uh, why this book, I'll be very honest, I knew nothing about climate change uh, one decade ago. I didn't know it existed, and I'm a science major and like the environment. Uh, that tells you the state of knowledge uh, of this topic amongst the general public. And until it hit me personally, as if we ran out of water at home, uh, I didn't care, and that's human nature. Right, and I think that's something that um, today, when so many of us try to uh, shame the other side in saying you're a bad person if you don't care, I think we need to understand the pointlessness of saying that if you're actually serious about solving a problem. So uh, that was why I wrote the book uh, because a I felt um, this is something that is going to hit every person. Um, And you know, when I started writing about this in 2013 14, people really thought this was a midlife crisis gone badly wrong. Uh, Today I get less of that. Uh, Today, you know, I hang out in corporate circles and people really thought, what is she doing? And today I get less of that. And today I get questions of, what can we do? Which is a good place to be in. Um, So there are two things I learned while writing about the book A, it's already here, it's not something in the future. India is the single most vulnerable country to climate change, right? And three, I think this is something we spoke about earlier also. The messaging and the medium matters in terms of who you're talking to. Right? Uh, When you talk about climate change in India, I think rather than cutting emissions, which most Indians are not responsible for, I think it's important to phrase it in terms of heatwaves, in terms of jobs, in terms of water. Which starts uh, resonating with more and more people and getting the motivation
2: to act. Yeah. That's been so. Uh, got, now we have. i uh, you have your third author. <laughs> <laughs>
3: you, Please give me a hand?
1: This is the family we are. We make our speakers to the world. <laughs> uh, Thank
2: you. Well, welcome, uh, Mr. Nangarajit. And uh, I was asking Muradhula uh, about why she wrote this before. What made her to write uh, this book? So, uh, I mean, as I said earlier, it's a wonderful book to begin with. Before this book, about 7-8 years back, or rather 10 years back, I wrote this uh, book, Green History of the World, by Clive uh, Ponting, which uh, starts with uh, um, the story about Easter Island, how... uh, it reached the present state, you start your book with uh, Chennai uh, floods, and you rightly said that when you face this water crisis at you go. So, apart from uh, these individual things which are affecting uh, people because of uh, climate change, as a society, as an Indian society, you have tried to touch, you wrote about. Uh, Farming uh, and number of things. Traditionally, because we are in Madhya Pradesh, in Paytas, there they have this concept of Bevar Swaraj. Bevar Swaraj is promoting the indigenous seeds, and uh, very early he wrote uh, a lot about that. So, what is your uh, when it comes to our Indian traditions, Indian things, and climate uh, change.
3: Um, okay. So, again, I'll go to the two groups, right? Uh, Rajendra Singh, uh, who spoke, I think, day before yesterday, is a good friend, right? So, I would say he is a wonderful proponent of the indigenous solutions of Joharts, etc. Works in an equilibrium, right? And the Indian solutions work beautifully when the equilibrium supported it. Today, I think we have certain scale issues where trying to apply indigenous solutions, and I think you know, when you step back and ask why are people using indigenous solutions, it's because they have a reasonably good understanding of the constraints and how their environment works. So they come up with a solution that works at that time. Today, we've moved beyond that. Right. So, if we try to apply indigenous solutions without understanding the environment, you may not get the effect that you require, like indigenous seeds, and I'll actually take that head off, because I have said genetic engineering is not necessarily a bad thing. Right? And this comes from a background of working in genetics, where, you know, uh, you, it's not, when you start working with, you get familiar with something it doesn't seem quite so evil. I think what is very important is field trials. Uh, and the incentive of the people doing the field trials. Monsanto, which is the poster boy of GMOs and painted as a bad organization, is governed by quarterly numbers and quarterly profits. So they may not have the incentive to run the long field trials which are required. But when I spoke to scientists in CREDA and ICAT, they said, look, politicians don't even want to give us funding to look at building in trade like drought resistance, heat resistance because you know what we're going to face and what are crops in the onion crisis is a great story and point. You know you start facing late onset rainfall so your seeds have to germinate in conditions which are unfriendly like they're very hot and you're not getting enough water and then by the time they're coming up to harvest you're facing too much water. So you have to be uh, flood resistance, and this is happening too quickly the plants to adopt, uh, adapt naturally. So you do, the plants do need help. The question is how and who? And those are billion dollar (laughs) questions. But I think we as members of a society that go into shaping these decisions should rather than saying no GMO it's a question of how do we help plants build resistance in a timeline which takes into account all factors.
0: Yeah, it's an excellent question. I think one of the reasons uh, there was a lot of fascination with the indigenous book was a deep critique of the modern book. So, around 20 years ago, it very important book. The fact, and I were discussing last night, you know, Dying Wisdom by the late Anita Gambad and Sunita Narayan. One of the things they did very well was to show that in different parts of India or South Asia, there were different systems of storing the rainwater. Because we have a Situation in monsoon and societies. There are about 20 such countries where the rainfall is concentrated at a certain time of the year. So we have a sharply defined wet and dry season. And naturally, human societies over centuries or millennia worked out different ways to deal with the problem of long term scarcity and short term abundance. And I think uh, this is a very important point. You know, we, we must keep in mind the moment we are in. In 1600, the population density was 35 per square kilometer. Suppose one were to use the I.N.A. and look at figures given by Shwetkumar. In 1880s, it was 70 to 80 to per square Today, it's a density of 400 to 500 to per square So we're looking at a
1: very different kind of relationship in terms of the human land ratio. point. Which I think is crucial is uh, the
0: Dying Wisdom book and the other work of Anil Akadwal actually was addressing one specific issue drinking water. So, the amount of water that a human being requires per day is roughly constant in order to drink and survive. But when you are looking at a society that is industrialized or societies that are practicing agriculture, agriculture with a single crop, so you are referring to the Baigas, right? you know, with the Baigas, the, the Bevar system had a single crop, which depended on the monsoon. They conducted that crop for a few cycles, and then they moved to a new site. So agriculture was rain-fed, and only a part of the surplus required to support the bikers. And other sections, bikers didn't trade. They hunted, they sold their labor, they provided a lot of other services. So what happens when a society not only has so many people, but so many people with a longer lifespan, so, a student of history, I'm always struck. You see, when India became independent, of the lifespan was about 32 years. Today, it is about 67, 68 years. So, even if it's the same number of people, they live living longer. The other is the industry also requires a lot of water. Urban societies have another kind of uh, uh, impact. Uh, one of the very uh, striking features of is that uh, we have to look at our time, keeping in mind insights of the past. But we have to craft responses which are specific. And just as the belief that latest modern technology can solve all your problems, maybe it's not. The belief that what looks indigenous can solve also may. So one needs to have a very thoughtful sort of response. I was very struck on this point of GMOs. See, I always like asking my students, what is the major uh, cereal crop in India? Students are very bright now. They tell you it's rice. Very bright student in first year will even remember from geography in school what the production of rice was. Then you ask them the second question, have you seen rice which is being grown? They'd say yes. The stalks are in water. Then you ask them why is it grown in water? It'll be a long silence. And one of the reasons it's grown in water is to cut off the sunlight for the weeds. Now one of the reasons China went for GMOs is to reduce the amount of water used for the rice. Of course it's an issue and Italy. It is an issue of farmer's control of knowledge. It's an issue of what its biological and ecological effects may be. But I am very struck. You see, uh, I am from South India, but I grew up in the North. And one of the things I love about uh, eating in friends' houses is that I get cooked, cooked in mustard oil, sarso ka teher. But the ka tehir is not used, let us say, in my house. We use til ka teher, ginger oil. Now, sarson or mustard is grown only in India, Pakistan and Bangladesh. Nobody else in the world has heard about Sarsong or wants to consume it. The major breakthrough on Sarsong was done by Professor Deepak Twainkey in Delhi University. He later became Vice Chancellor. And the initial trials showed something like a 20-25% increase of meat. This is a public sector organization, Delhi University. There is no company involved. Now this is a valid debate. What should we do? How do we regulate the technology? What will be the role of the producer? But the unfortunate fact is the result of the petitioning was that research has been banned for 50 years. This is very unfortunate. So we need to look at new forms of knowledge with respect and critically. We need to look at earlier forms of knowledge with respect and critically. And historically, one of the problems of a society is that this debate should be a little open. It shouldn't go by name. And I'm sure sir, you agree that when we look at these issues, how we pose the question is also important. It's not just finding the answer. It may not be the right answer. Five years later, we may try another set of uh, approaches. Sorry.
2: And, then, and then especially uh, this debate of uh, GMO, uh, we don't want to go towards uh, GMO thing. Left and right is on the same page. Their uh, organizations, uh, farmers' organization, they are on the same page. Uh, I remember uh, going to and there uh, so many communities they have built their seed banks and they are trying to do it but you are right and uh, particularly I fully uh, agree to this point that uh, you have to look both ways any one system cannot be completely uh, good or bad now coming to uh, the climate uh, Solution uh, in your book I was trying to find out I mean why this debate is not becoming a debate of political parties why this uh, debate is not being debated in the studios or in the vernacular uh, newspapers of course I mean there are newspapers who do write about it but uh, sitting in the Hindi heartland, we hardly see uh, this becoming uh, a narrative or a discussion uh, having uh, around this topic. Why is it? What... Uh, I uh, thank you,
3: sir. I think uh, this is probably the defining question for the next 5 to 10 years, which is uh, an important decade to get our action going on climate change. It's really important. So why, let me just see if I understood you correctly. Why is action on climate change or to extend the environment not politically resilient? Right? And it's an important question in a country which is a democracy. Right? Because politicians, their job role, is to get re-elected, I mean, just putting everything aside, it's to get re-elected. And if they do not see people voting for, you know, policies that advance action on climate change or environment or something, they're not going to do it. All things, uh, all ends being equal. And we actually, in our institute, we went and asked a bunch of people, would you vote on this? And we gave a bunch of, uh, instead of just saying, would you vote on this, they'd say yes, madam. But uh, we went and asked a number of staff and asked them to rank. What would you vote for? And honestly, water in Madurai, where I come from, which was a terrible drought, they were getting water once in four days, and they were getting 20 to 50 liters per person. Still, water was not a voting problem. And why is that? Right? It's not. Let's be very honest. It's not. And why is it? In climate change, one of the biggest debates in Computing damages to the world was the discount rate that was used to discount future damages to present time. And there was a huge argument amongst giants in economics on whether the discount rate should be six percent or four percent or two percent or whatever. The average discounting rate for a economically vulnerable Indian is upwards of fifty percent. Okay, yeah. Let's be very clear that in informal markets. You know the small, medium, uh, the smaller farmer, your urban poor, the maid who comes, the uh, the petty shop owner. Their discounting rate is, you know, if they get MFI funding, sorry, uh, uh, microfinance funding, 25%, 27%. Otherwise, informal markets, it's 50 to 80%. Which means the next week doesn't matter. Right, their time scales are so small that anything beyond the next week does not matter, and I think that we have to be very aware of. We can sit in you know fancy rooms and have intellectual conversations, but until we realize this, to you know talk about things that resonate with them, it's very important. And I think the second point which we were discussing is language. Right, we're talking in English today, and. This is a nice to have for many people on the streets. If we do not talk in language that they understand, I was in Kodikana recently and I was talking to a guy who operates a horse ride. And I've known him for 40 years. And he said, I'll say the Tamil and I'll translate. I'll say it in Tamil and I'll translate. Handa, ka, night Which means, madam, it's too cold, it's too warm, right? I can't even use a blanket to sleep in the night in Kodikana, right? I think if you start talking to them, uh, talking to the regular average Indian in language they understand, in stuff that matters in shorter time frames, which because climate change is already here, it begins to resonate, then you might get political interest. Okay, political action is always a followership, it's never a leadership, and that's fair because their job description, let's be very honest, and you know, just strip it away of anything, Just to get real.
2: I think being a political uh, and a social scientist, I mean, what
0: is your take on this question? I don't think India is exceptional. You know, when you look at democratic societies as well as authoritarian societies, over the last uh, hundred of years, one of the big transformations is that most countries are independent. We are living in a world of nation states. There are about 200 of them. But something which is very important is they are still competing with each other. They are not competing to grow in size. They are competing often to have the largest armies or the names. But more important than that, they are competing to have the largest economies. And this struggle of sovereign states becomes a struggle of each against all. Underlying the failure of governments of the world to reach an agreement, a serious agreement with serious action on climate change or species extinctions. I can give you a normal list, is that the particular interests of each nation state and the dominant interest groups in that state push it in a certain direction. It's difficult to think of a better educated, more sensitive, more humane president of the United States in the post-war history than Barack Obama. But his successor was elected with a specific kind of agenda which put coal and oil first. So the old economy is very much there. So what is good for the oil interests, the coal interest is good for the United States. It's of course good for Mr. Trump's voters. Many of whom, let's not forget are working class. So in the Appalachians, the people who are out of work, you go and tell them that, you know what, you've got to give up your job to save the planet. Uh, they are very big fellows, they are some six foot, two inches, I don't think you would want to be there at the end of the hour. you'd be probably run away. And in a country such as India, I, I really like this analogy, this issue of that. What is it that is at the top of your agenda? Go back about 50 years. You know, in the late 60s, the major issue in India was food reliance on United States. And one answer to that is a package of measures known as the Green Revolution. In the short run, it worked. India moved move from dependence on food imports to United States to self-reliance. So in the late 60s, some 20% of American wheat output ended up in India. And India didn't have the money to pay for it. There was the PN484. Over the last 30 years, that memory has faded. But we know now that one of the ways the Green Revolution worked was by applying huge amounts of fertilizer. And one of the most important fertilizers was nitrogen. And Vaclav Smil argues that the synthesis of ammonia was probably one of the great breakthroughs in human history: the Haber Bosch process. That urea and other forms of nitrate drove up the games. But look at one of the results. Across the world there are dying water bodies. Both in the lakes and in the rivers and in the seas. Because all the nitrogen is not absorbed by the plant. Everything goes somewhere. There is no such thing as waste as very common acid. But the Indian-Pakistani Green Revolution has a second dimension. It's powered by groundwater. 60-70% of the irrigation in India. Doesn't come from surface but from groundwater. As we all know, the groundwater is being pumped up far faster than it is being recharged. So there is a larger question. Is there a situation where a society to survive for the present is destroying its future? This is understandable if it's someone servicing a rate of 60%, 80% and it goes up. It goes up. Suppose you default one week, one month, it goes up even further. That's how the debt crisis. So this is a very serious question, how do you get enlightened leaderships who look at the future and the present? And one answer of course is that even in the late 60s and 70s, environmental uh, issues moved towards the center stage. It didn't only happen because of the leaders and leaders. it happened because these issues were posed. Which is why, uh, whether it is Greta Thunberg or people opposing the large dam in Subansiri, or along the coast people saying why are you putting docks and harbours where there are very important brain systems. Each of these is posing a question for all of us. And there may not be one answer. But definitely, we can't go on with the old way. So, I don't have an answer. I'll take I refuge behind quotation of Einstein. He said, We cannot solve the new problems with the old way of thinking. The old way of thinking, which brought us to this, you know, which created the problem in the first place. So, I, I acknowledge your question. And I think one answer is we have to evolve a way address these day-to-day issues which people struggle: with. water, jobs, a better day, but do so in a manner that draws on the best practices to minimize environmental costs and not impose these costs on the least privileged. I am very struck, you know Chitrangada Singh, a very good uh, journalist, uh, uh, Chaudhary, she has been writing extensively, she now writes on the bed. the new ADI programs. They are actually enclosing farm and lands, village bochers and planting trees. Now, this is certainly not the way to deal with global warming. Of course, we need reforestation. But can we do reforestation which taps into people's own energy and gives them a sense of purpose? So, there is enormous potential. And it's, it's understandable. Just like corporate balance sheets dictate, you know, whether Mr. Misri or Tata should have Tata's. Similarly, the people's balance sheet governs who will govern you for five years. But we have to look ahead. And I'm extremely hopeful in a country where most of the population is under 35, and they are energized by a set of issues, this is also one of the issues which can, and can energize.
3: Deepak, and, uh, this is uh, something that's very important. See, one thing we in climate action, especially climate adaptive action, uh, there's a wonderful equilibrium that puts everything in a thing. If you talk, ask someone in Karnataka to care about what's happening in Assam, not going to happen but if you ask someone in chokikodan my own neighborhood to care about what's happening with, within our own street it will happen and the greatest hope that i have in climate adaptive action is it's hyper local in uh, in nature right if you want to start doing um, uh, adaptive action in terms of water waste it happens at the neighborhood the house the apartment complex the ward, the city. At that point, you can get the politician, the local politician, to care. The privacy shifts, right? It's not great scopes in the national policy or anything. It becomes the neighborhood policy, the city policy, watershed policy. At that level, it, you start getting both action and political incentives aligned. So I think if we can change the geographic scope, there is hope for that. I don't know.
2: Wonderfully uh, addressed uh, this issue by giving up what actions we can take. There's small suggestion like painting your roof with uh, white color. So, uh, I mean, this is good. Uh, what uh, Mahesh was speaking, uh, don't you think that it is here where the role of media? should be increased, media should play a bigger role. That is one thing. Secondly, uh, this issue of climate change, as we were speaking, it has been reduced to the issue of pollution. Whenever you speak about uh, this thing, so immediately people will uh, start uh, speaking about the plastic waste and other things. I mean the masses. Similarly, uh, like Gandhi uh, has been reduced just to Swarajtha and uh, Charkha, Gandhi is a huge is a huge uh, thing. On this, uh, what you were saying uh, when we were discussing about this, because your next book is on water, probably. How uh, do you? Uh, I mean, what is your take on this? I'm not allowed. Then later. Sorry.
3: So, um, the role of media, you said. Yeah,
2: By trivializing this thing. Uh,
3: yeah. Okay, so again, I will say we are looking in the wrong place, right? Um, it's not a journalist again will will write what he hopes or she hopes will get right, right? So let's again let's put the cart and the horse properly. I think uh, today one thing that a mentor of mine said is nobody reads books meaning uh, people watch videos so why don't you actually make short videos i think the point is point that you're trying to convey is how do we get good understanding uh, to the people uh, unfortunately today you know with the rise of twitter etc you are getting tribalization of communication and uh, people become increasingly more tribal to actually stand up And that is uh, uh, coarsening the entire debate, which is, uh, you know, you you only read what your own tribe writes and the discussion loses nuance Um, and in a subject like climate change you really do need nuance at a very, very high extent Um, and I'm not going to say, I think as a a parent of two children I have internalized the meaninglessness of the word show, it doesn't work. Uh, The meaninglessness of the word should. Conscience doesn't work. I mean, if I tell my kids, yeah, you should do this, it doesn't work. Um, I think it it now behoves uh, people who write to write um, in many audiences, not in this kind of an audience which actually is willing to give space for climate change, but in the corporate audience where they really don't care, I don't use the word climate change at all. I talk about reducing costs and increasing revenue and appealing to your core millennial customer, right? I mean, you, you you should communicate in the language of the user and use your skills to com- craft the message in the language that appeals. Um, I hope that answered your question.
0: No, I think, so. we are living at a very particular moment when the challenge of justice is acquiring a new kind of dimension. We lived through a world where justice was about justice between nations. Or we came up with the concept of justice for underprivileged sections or classes. Then we came up with the ideas of justice which transcends race or caste or gender. What do you do with justice if it transcends species? What do you do with justice if it transcends generations? It's a very large question. And of course you begin with where you are. Uh, The media across the world is in a state of crisis. There is the crisis of a transition from print to the internet. There is the transition from the old way of funding the media to new ways of funding the media. There is the crisis of transition to different kinds of attention spans. The person who would sit one hour, two hours motionless in front of Netflix will not spend 30 minutes reading a book. The person who would have 20 years ago written a long letter of one, one and a half pages. We'll now write a short tweet or a very short WhatsApp. Forget even about email. But the reality is that one of the advantages in a country such as India is that the nature of the environmental dilemma hits you every day. But it hits you in different ways. For one person it is that they have to put the bore well deeper to get water. For the other, is that water drying up means they might have to give up growing that crop and shift to another crop. For one person, it is that the danger of floods is such that they have to shift their home and For the other, it is that a new opportunity is opened up because there's a factory coming up. So these are very complex choices. What the media can do and has done in the past is to inform us about. Uh, one of the people joining my university, this one, is a very unused person called Mukul Sharma. For many years, he worked for Navarat Times. He was my senior at college. He started working on Navarat Times in the It's a very different world. And 20 years ago, he moved to these uh, aid agencies and then he became an academic. And one of the things I'm struck by is, you know, he did a book called Landscapes and Lives, which was based on Navarat Times reports. So, he is a very problem of soil erosion. He wrote a very nice essay which is in this book. And I was asking him how is it you managed to write an essay of 5000 words. He said he didn't. He went back to Chambalingarque. Seven, eight, ten years in a row. The newspaper paid him. He went and stayed there three, four days. He moved around, talked to people, assessed So, earlier the media was willing to look at these kind of in-depth stories. It helped. The Rio conference that happened. Now that same media is not doing it. But, I don't think it's an entirely bleak picture. So, if you look for instance at scroll or Wire, just to give two instances, this kind of person is writing opinion pieces there. Is it a substitute? Absolutely not. So, I think there are new challenges, but there are also new voices. So, I'm very struck, uh, you know, like, uh, the struggle against the Subansiri dams in Arunachal, very large dams, they inundate a very large area of forest, they'll also wreak havoc on the livelihood systems of the Brahmaputra in Assam. For eight years, eight years, government could bring the turbines in. They came all the way up the Brahmaputra and went back. Now they managed to break the back of that movement. Painted them as anti development. Nowadays it's a fashion to call anything anti national. They disagree with the government. You know, there is a question do you love your country or your government? I think you should love your country. You should not hate your government, but you are allowed to differ with your government. You are certainly allowed to differ with your government on whether or not a dam should be built. Whether it should be built in that place, in that way, at that time. If we can't debate that, then we can't get this development question back. And there, I think there is an issue with the media. And honestly, media today is powerfully driven by advertisers. In a time of industrial slowdown, the biggest advertiser, surprise, surprise, is government. And it does make a huge difference. Uh, To the people who run media, eventually media is a business. So, my feeling is these voices will come. The same people who are not able to write in the newspaper will use WhatsApp. They can't use WhatsApp, they'll use email. They can't use email, they'll use a mobile phone. They will find a way. After all, after all, if these issues directly impinge on people's lives, they will respond. I am very struck, one of the places we hear a lot about is Bangalore. And my colleague, we are working on a book now, we've just started, Harini Nagendra, over the last 10 years as a scientist, has done a lot of work in and around Bangalore, a lot of citizens' groups, for trying to revive the lakes. And it's a very critical issue for Bangalore. It's a question of life and death. The water now is piping from the cave. Some hundreds of lakes were there even 50 years ago. They've been destroyed. Uh, They've been built over. How do we revive them? So, society has to find a way and this issue of the media is a very, very good issue. Why is the media and politics, or public life, not taking up these issues? Is the pursuit of the trivial, <coughs> and attempt not to address that which is essential? How do we make the essential central? And I am struck. I, I mean, I am really struck by the way in which so many creative forms have come up in which people are taking these issues up. So in a,
2: in a way you rightly said that technology ultimately is giving so many platforms. Mm-hmm. My editor, again, uh, <laughs> at the J.R. Gopal Shishnan, he used to say, a reporter should be able to tell his story in 25 words. If he cannot, it means he needs to do more research. This he used to say 20 years back when Twitter hasn't uh, arrived of course, the issue of long-form and short-form and all these things, uh, they are there. But uh, the way uh, technology has impacted media, technology is one reason for this climate uh, change also, and it will give solutions also, as your your, uh, book uh, says, how do you see technology as a solution for climate change. You have given a number of solutions, I think some five, six pages you have dedicated for solutions. solution.
3: Um, technology is a tool, right? The situation in which you use the tool and who uses the tool is more important than the tool itself. Uh, I'll give you a positive and a negative uh, on how technology can be used well and uh, badly i started badly first. One of the things that is gaining some currency as a cure for climate change is something called geoengineering. Uh, before I bracket on, uh, just a show of hands, how many people have actually heard of geoengineering or know what it means? Okay, so very few, so I'll take two minutes to just explain what it is. Geoengineering is uh, altering the climate globally through intervention. Uh, example of it which is gaining some momentum is uh, reflecting the rays of the sun by putting small particles up in the stratosphere. Right? In my opinion, I think that's one of the severe things we can do. Right? Uh, A Any trial, and there are some trials out in the market today, do not talk about it in the global uh, context. The second is when you reflect sunlight, what happens? You kill plants, right? And the closest example I could find is a volcanic eruption, like a giant volcanic eruption shuts up a lot of particles up into the stratosphere and brings down temperatures very drastically. I think uh, the Tambora explosion in 1815 brought down temperature and it was called the year without summer. But a year without summer means agricultural failures, right? And recently I was in a water conference in Bangalore when they say you know aerosols, which is basically the small particles, when you push them up, it influences the hydrological cycle and lowers rainfall, right? So we're fiddling around. It. The analogy I get is you get like a monkey putting its hand into the uh, electrical plug and saying what you're doing. That is technology gone badly wrong. Where is technology gone wonderfully well? I think. Um, in, one, in in my house, when we ran out of water, um, we did, had no idea how we were using our water, right? So today we have 15 water meters in our house. Somebody asked me how big is your house? We have water meters on every tap, right? And not every tap, like the major taps. So we have a very granular understanding of what, uh, and what, how, who, where we use water, right? Which has allowed us to cut our water, right? Today, we have a biogas plant at home, which has allowed us to go zero waste, right? I've invested in a company that takes, works with several municipalities in Madhya Pradesh, Go you know, for one, which takes your municipal wet waste and converts it into pressurized biogas. That's technology gone wonderfully, right? Technology, at the end of the day, is a tool. The person who uses the tool, and the context in which the tool is used, is more important, right? It's not a bad yeah,
2: that's wonderful and I think we have uh, come to the end of uh, this, this discussion and uh, you are right that technology is a tool, ultimately it is we who matters and uh, thank you Mahesh, thank you Nurdulahi for being us because after all uh, the book, the thoughts which you share, ultimately they will be helpful for the people who are manning those technologies, thank you.
1: You were listening to a session from the Bhopal Literature and Art Festival, January 2020. Stay tuned for more such podcasts.